I doubt that I'm the only one here in this room who loves lists. I love lists, whether it comes in the form of a post-it note or a smartphone application or a whiteboard in which you can draw on it, write all these lists of things that need to get done. I just love them, not because I like to see all the words, but you know why. Because there is such joy in taking that marker and drawing out that item that needed to get done that you just got done. Or looking through on your phone and pushing a button and it making that oh so satisfying sound of boop boop, which means that that list has now one less item that needs to be accomplished. Or taking all those post-it notes that surround your computer screen. Is that, how, is that where you put your... That's where I put my post-it notes. Because otherwise, I'm not going to be able to find them. Usually, if it's really important, it goes right in the middle of the screen. So I can't check my email. I can't do anything until I get that one list, that one item off. And I love... Yanking that post-it note off and crumpling it up and throw it away and say, I've done it. And so that's why religion is so great for me. It just fits perfectly in. Even from a young age, I can remember having these lists in which that we would have and we could learn these things. And, and I hope you had the joy that I had as a young child getting that little strip of construction paper and folding it over into a loop and stapling it and it would make a ring and you would add more to that ring. And at the end of the semester... You you would drag around this 12, 18 foot long chain so everybody would know that you brought your Bible and you brought your friend and you brought a canned item. That was my favorite part you got to bring. If you brought something from the pantry and it would go into the, the, the church pantry and they would get, I love doing that. It was great because not only did I get to give to somebody who needed something, it gave me an opportunity to purge our pantry at home of all the canned goods that I really didn't want to eat. It's amazing how often I would bring hominy, whatever that is, and give every Sunday. And I got the link and I got to get those gigantic chunks of corn out of the house. It was great. I loved the list. And some of the lists that we had were like the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the 10 commandments, the 9 fruit of the Spirit, the 8, eight and a half Beatitudes, the 7 churches in Asia, the 6 days of creation. We memorized these. These were these lists that we had and I love to know them and say that I got them done. I'm not very good at spelling, but I can remember by 3rd grade knowing all 66 books of the Bible and I could spell most of them, especially Job. I was always good at that one. And so when we look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we begin by reading Jesus' what we call the Beatitudes, and we call it a list, because we love the list. We love to see it out there and check it off and know that this is what has happened. And we're inclined to do the same thing as Jesus begins and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we make the little box 
out beside that verse, verse 3, and we say, okay, when we've got that down, we can check it off. What's next? Blessed are those who mourn. Well, that's kind of weird, but it's still a part of the list. So if I go around and I'm sad all the time, then I'm a blessed person. But Jesus is not giving a checklist of how to be happy in eight easy steps. Instead, He's calling a people of not used that we talked about several weeks ago. People who lived under a religious, oppressive system. And He says, listen, no matter how bad it gets, things have changed. And I love how Matthew chapter 5 in so many ways, looks just like Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, the chapter before Jesus, excuse me, God says, I'm coming down to be with you. That's what He says at the foot of the mountain. Fast forward a few hundred years, a little over a thousand, and then we have Jesus on the mountain. But this again is not some list that he's offering for people to check off. He's reminding the people that God has come down. And what he was reminding them is that things have changed. Because for a long time you've been told by these high priests, these men who wear these things called phylacteries, does anybody know what a phylactery is? It's a box. It's a box that you tie on your head. Sounds kind of silly, but it was a fashion statement back then for those who were overly pious. If you remember back in the Shema, when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. At one point it says, you know, tie these as symbols on your foreheads. And so they took that very literally, and they would create these little leather boxes, these priests would, and they would stuff them with little bits of Scripture that they were to memorize that was supposed to be close to them. And So they kind of had this contest, you can imagine, of who had the biggest phylactery, and they would walk around with these big boxes, leather boxes tied around their heads, and they made themselves feel real special because they wore the purple, and they had the gold chains, and they told all these other people, said, there is a God, and He loves people, but not you. You're not allowed to get close enough to Him, you're unholy, unclean, you're a female, you're a Gentile. We forget, I think, for the most part, that when it's talked about the holy and chosen ones, it's really not talking about us at all. The chosen people of God in the Old Testament were the Jews. And sometimes we forget that we would have been the outsiders had we been placed in the first century. We would have been the ones that, as Gentiles, unable to come into the presence of of God. We were pushed out. We were kept to the side. You can worship, but not here. And it really doesn't count because it's not here. But we won't let you in. You can stay in the outer courts. 
And they kept everybody at an arm's distance, or maybe a little further, a stone's throw if possible. They wanted to be the ones who could dole out access to God, but they never seemed to do it. And Jesus steps onto the scene, and He says, For those of you who are broken down and realize that you can't do it by yourself, I want you to know that you are blessed that you are happy, that you are well off. Not because everything is going bad, but because God has come down. And He's here. And I'm Him. No longer do you have to be the person who's pushed out, kept away, not allowed in. You're no longer the one who's unclean. You're the one who will be my child. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, which is a contradiction it seems because blessed can also be translated as happy. Happy are those who mourn. He wasn't saying go around and be in a pitiful, poor, sad, pathetic state. He's saying for those of you who weep for the sins that you have in your life, take comfort because I am here and I will take away that sin. And then he introduces us to a word that somehow seems to have gotten lost in translation. As we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we try to make some kind of assumption as to what meek might be. I saw a bumper sticker one time. It says, if you teach your child to be meek, he will never learn how to merge onto a freeway. If you grow up in the city and you see what it's like to try to get on the freeway, there has to be nothing gentle about entering on. You say, I'm coming over and you move and let me in, or we're going to have an accident. I've seen people who stop on the entrance of a freeway because they're afraid that they're going to cut somebody off. That's not really what meek is. But somehow we decided that meek meant that maybe you were a little weak, maybe you were cowardly, maybe you were a touch timid. I saw a cartoon that just it made me laugh out loud several years ago. I, I saw it, it said, shortly after the meek inherit the earth, they try to give it to each other. As if they think, oh, I don't know that I really need to have this and I don't really have a spine. I'm just, I just, I want to give it to you. And, and is that what Jesus is saying? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are the timid. Well, I, I think we need to take a little bit deeper look at this and as many different commentaries as I, I tried to consult regarding what the word meek was, it seemed that there were two possible definitions of what meek might actually be. But neither one of them seemed to indicate that it means timid or spineless. The Greek word praes uh, says it might mean that they have an inability to retaliate. That meek means that they don't have the resources to fight back. 
Now this would have been so appropriate to those hearing the message of Jesus in the first century because they had been pushed down and told that they were no good and that they weren't worth anything and that you don't dare mess with any of the chief priests or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. These were the elite, the upper class, and you're not allowed to be a part of that. And certainly that's how they felt. That's why John the Baptist was such a big deal. I love John the Baptist. Before the high priest's sandals hit the hot sand of the desert, he's pointing them out and saying, you brood of vipers. And here down in the south, we say, you bunch of snakes. And everybody said, whoa, did, did he just say that? Does meek really mean that they're weak? Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 talks about this idea of being meek or humble. And it's attributed to a man by the name of Moses. In which it was said that he was the most humble man who walked on the face of the earth. Moses sound weak to you? Moses, the one who led millions through the desert. Moses, the one who was used by God to cross the Red Sea. Moses, the one when the men made the golden calf, he had them grind it down and made them drink it. Drink that poison. Moses, who earlier in Egypt, Killed a man with his own hands. Does that sound like someone who was weak? Moses certainly was several different things, but weak wasn't one of them. How could it be that Numbers chapter 12 calls him humble and gentle? Certainly he couldn't have been weak. And what about Jesus? Jesus certainly was one who was considered meek. Was he weak? The way he confronted the religious leaders of the time. The way that he never backed down. Weak, spineless people don't braid whips and kick over tables. Jesus did. And I think of that moment on the cross. Had any of us had the power that Jesus had, would we have done what He did? Was it weakness that He hung on the cross? Was it an unbelievable, unfathomable amount of strength that as He looked down on the people who were cursing Him and saying things about Him and His followers and His mother those who were spitting on him and hitting him, making fun of him, selling his clothes at his feet. Was it weakness that he stayed on the cross? Or was it a great, unbelievable amount of strength that he let them live? Because I can tell you something. If I'm up there in pain and a guy's about to spit on me, and I have the power, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make him choke on his own spit and he's going to die right there. 
Don't you think Jesus had that power? Don't we know that He had the ability to call down legions of angels and just obliterate those Roman soldiers and the Jews who were so pious in the way that they crucified the one who came to save them? Was it weakness that Jesus did that? I can test that it was His strength. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It seems that maybe another definition of meek that fits quite well is the idea of it being strength which is under control. Now I'm going to have to apologize ahead of time because you know, if you don't already, I'm not a country boy. I'm not. I mean, I would love to be. I love the cowboys. But I'm not a cowboy. I own boots, but I've never lived on a ranch. I like my steak medium rare, not still on the side of the cow. So I really don't know a lot about farm animals. I know there's certain ones that I enjoy on my breakfast plate, but by and large, I couldn't tell you the difference between a pig and a sow. Is that how you pronounce it? Is a pony a baby horse or just a little bitty one? I, I don't know these things. But apparently if you take a large horse that has grown up in the wild, it's going to be a, a wild horse. And I know the Clydesdales are the huge horses with the big furry hooves, so we're going to use those as an example. This large horse that's out roaming around in the plains, and you, you don't just walk up and say, hey, can I get a ride here, you know, taxi here. Just stay still. I'm going to put the saddle on you, and I'm going to tighten it, you know, and we're going to, let me hop on here. That's not how it works. They have to be broke. And you pull them in, and you break them, and you train them, and you work with them. And if you think you're going to get on one that hasn't been broke, you're going to get on it, and, and you're going to be the one that's broke, not the horse. Because it's going to buck you off. But ultimately, under the right amount of training, that horse becomes meek. Now, I didn't say weak. I didn't say it can't run fast. I didn't say it can't go for long distances. I didn't say that it can't jump a fence. I'm saying that it becomes under control. Now, I'm not inclined to get on a horse, wild or tame, either one. But if I had my choice, I'm going to take the latter of the two. As Jesus is saying these words, blessed are the meek, it becomes pretty obvious that this is a slap in the face to the religious leaders at the time. Because they hadn't shown gentleness. What they wanted to do is oppress and bring down and squash. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, not because you're getting trampled on, but because I'm going to be the one who lifts you up. Because I'm going to destroy this system 
that says you have to do this and this and that and this and you have to be this and you have to observe this one and you have to do this thing and you can't do that thing. And then, maybe then, you'll almost be good enough. Jesus says, no way. No longer will you be stuck under the system of oppression. He confronted the leaders. He never backed down. He had the power but he remained in control. You see how each one of these builds up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who don't feel just like they're deserving. And Jesus says, I'll take care of you. Blessed are those who mourn, those who recognize the situation that they're in. And he says, I will comfort you. And he goes on to say, well, you've been comforted, but what are you going to do with that now? Are you going to take that and lord it over people? Are you going to be the one who rules with the iron fist? Or are you going to be meek? And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Have you ever been hungry before? Some of you are saying, right about now I'm hungry. It's good. I'm glad that it's cooled off a little bit. I don't like the cold weather at all. And it's a little chilly in here. But really, you're going to have a tough time falling asleep. Especially when you get cold and hungry. When you start to get hungry... You kind of do things that you wouldn't normally do because that's something that you want really bad. Now, we talk about food, and I think a lot of us have been hungry for food, but have you been hungry for other things before? Something that you just had to have, you really needed, that if you didn't have, you just couldn't survive? Think back a few years, just a couple years for most of you when you were a young child. And you can think about Christmas time coming around. Maybe you're the one who wanted that Red Rider BB gun that you just had to have. Or the doll or the toy, the transformer that you thought, if I just had that, everything would be great. I just, I really wanted and that's all you did. I can remember as a child back in the day, my, my son, he doesn't get to participate in this. They don't do it anymore. But years ago, you remember the, the, the Sears catalog and the service merchandise and some of those other catalogs that would come out. And I would go through those and peruse and I would circle those and I would leave them as hints hoping that my parents would accidentally open to the toy section and see all the different things that I had circled, things that I thought I just had to have. Well, I've gotten a little older, and they don't have the Toys R Us catalog anymore, and I'm less likely to want a Transformer, but we still want toys or cars or that promotion. What is it that you're looking forward to? What is it that you're grasping? If I can just get to this point, I'll be happy. I can't wait till we go on that cruise. As soon as we get on that boat, everything will be great. (laughs) 
But eventually the boat's going to come back. And you're going to realize that what you really, really wanted, what was going to fill you up, just didn't quite do it enough. I was a senior in high school. I went to a private school. And uh, the only reason I went to the private school was because my mother was a teacher. We really didn't have the money to afford um, that, the uh, tuition there, but I was on scholarship. And let me tell you, folks, it was not an athletic scholarship, nor academic, for that matter. <laughs> but I was allowed to go there. But it was interesting because we were a lower middle income family, uh, and we got to go there in, in the minivan, the Dodge minivan with a four-cylinder and the fake wood on the sides. And it was a well, it was a junker of a car, to say the least. But that's what we had. And that's what, but it was weird when we would, you know, pull up and it would literally be next to the Mercedes and the BMW. And my friend whose dad drove the Porsche 928S, which was like my dream car. And, I just, and then he would pull up and get out of the Porsche. And I would use the sliding door to get out of the minivan that had the stains on it. My senior year... My grandmother did something that she had done for my two older brothers. She said that I would be getting a car for graduation. And, and it usually it's not at graduation. You get it, you know, just a little bit before. And so I picked out the car that I wanted more than anything else. It was 1994. And the new model Ford Mustang was coming out. And uh, I couldn't get the, uh, the 5.0 because insurance said, I don't think so, not with your driving record. And so I was going to get this 3.8 liter V6 with the, the blue and the Mach 460 sound system. And it was a standard. And I picked out everything. We didn't go pick it at the lot. We said, this is what we'd like to have. And, and they're going to order it for us. And I waited. They said it would take four to six weeks to come in. And you better believe at week three, I started calling. At week five, I started calling them names. Uh, and by week 12, finally, the Ford had made it. They had built it. It got delivered. I picked it up. It had seven miles on it. I was going to question them about who was driving around for seven miles. I had never had anything nice, nothing like this. But let me tell you, I had delusions of grandeur at what this Ford Mustang was going to do to me and my life. My social status, we didn't have Facebook, but if we did, all of a sudden I'd be everybody's friend because now I had this cool new sweet car. And I knew that I was going to pull up into the parking lot and all the girls were going to come running out saying, Doug, oh, I love you, that's a beautiful car. I told, you know, step back please, you know. I just, I knew this was going to happen. I got the car on a Friday, it came in. And I did something that no normal teenager would do. I read the manual. <laughs> I knew everything there was to know about that car. I knew when I was supposed to shift. I knew everything about it. I took it in. I dug through an old rag box and got the softest cloth. And I wiped it down and I drove it out the next day. And, and it was a Saturday uh, evening and I was just uh, coming home and it had 80 miles on it. And this blinding light caught my eye. And it went, clunk, clunk, 80 miles. And the check engine light came on. 
it limped back home. Made it about a mile. I coasted in. I just rolled into the garage. And I shut the garage. And I walked past that super soft cloth that I had been wiping it down with. And I just kept on walking. Monday came around and everybody was expecting me to be in the new car. And I was still in the old junker. And for the next several years, it broke down all the time. Jennifer and I joked that it had a little a little sensor that it knew when something really important was. If I got into the car and I was dressed nice, it knew that's the time to break down. How many of us hunger and thirst for the 1994 Ford Mustang? Well, maybe not so much anymore, but what about the 2013? Or the bigger house, or the better job, or the something that we say, if I, if I get this, then I arrive, I'll really be there, that's what's important. Once I get to go on that cruise, once I get to retire, whatever it is, we think, then I'll have it made. And we hunger, and we thirst, for anything other than God. And we think that somehow we'll be filled by anything other than our Creator. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our society is a little different than it was 2,000 years ago. If you look through magazines, you're going to see the, the people who are shown more often are the, the slender ones. They, they, don't, they don't show the, the healthy ones, the pleasantly plump ones. That wasn't the case several thousand years ago. If you were slender, it meant that you obviously didn't have enough money to feed yourself when you were a lower class. For them, it was those who were filled. They were the ones who were blessed. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the ones who are malnourished, the ones that just want a little bit more to eat, everybody's saying, what's going on here? Because the religious says, we have everything that we need. Jesus says, then you have nothing at all. I heard someone say in a prayer one time, God, please be with those who need you the most and those who think they need you the least. How full are you? How hungry? Are you for the righteousness that God calls us to? Righteousness that's not about a checklist. Righteousness that's not just about a relationship with God. It includes those, but it also is a righteousness that says that I'm going to stand up for those who are hurting and lonely and broken. I hurt for the social injustices of this world. That we hunger and thirst for God's present presence to be manifested in this world. For Him 
to fill our lives. If there's anything that you're looking forward to in your life, it's going to disappoint you. It's going to break down. It's going to become dilapidated. It's going to lose its excitement. But Jesus continues to fill. And that's what he's offering you this morning. And that's what we want to offer you as well. My encouragement for you is that you hunger and thirst. And nothing will satisfy that craving other than Jesus Christ. And that you desire to know him more. And to relish in the fact that you're a child of His. If there's any way that we can help you this morning, whether it's coming forward to place membership and identify with this church, if you choose to want to die to yourself and to be put on in baptism, if you want to come here requesting prayers, or maybe you need to have some confidential personal prayer time with one of our shepherds, DA will be back in the family room. If there's any way that we can help you this morning, We want to encourage you to come as we stand and sing.